Hey everyone, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a monthly donation at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to our most recent Patreon supporters, Abigail and Bing. If you're a fan of this show, you're probably a fan of educational podcasts in general. So I encourage you to check out Lyceum, a new podcast app that curates and builds communities around educational audio. Go to lyceum.fm to learn more and download it for yourself. Link in the show notes. All right, let's get on to today's episode, part five in a series on the evolution of English idioms. If you were trying to prove something and that proof came in the form of a physical object, say, an important document, an article of clothing, whatever it may be, you probably wouldn't put your proof in pudding. But, as the saying goes, the proof is in the pudding. When taken literally, the proof is in the pudding sounds like a plot twist in a surrealist fairy tale, but taken idiomatically, its meaning is something like, I'll believe it when I see it, or actions speak louder than words, both of which are also idioms, albeit idioms whose meanings are a little more transparent. In a more nuanced usage of the proof is in the pudding, it's also used to express that the only way to judge the value or effectiveness of something is by putting it to the test, not by judging it superficially. Like many English idioms that are semantically opaque, that is, idioms whose meanings can't be deduced by the meaning of the words they contain, the proof is in the pudding has been a part of the English language for a long time, and part of the reason why we can't understand the idiom's meaning based on the words it contains is because the meanings of those very words have changed over time. Not only have the meanings of proof and pudding evolved since the emergence of the idiom over 400 years ago, but the version of the idiom most common today, the proof is in the pudding, is actually a corruption of the phrase, the proof of the pudding, which makes even less literal sense, and that's because the proof of the pudding itself is a shortening of the phrase, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. In order to make sense of this series of evolutions, we need to go back to the beginning. So let's dive in. The earliest form of this idiom, perhaps, didn't refer to pudding at all. According to the OED, the Middle English proverb, it is writ that everything himself showeth in the tasting, dates back to at least the 1300s. While neither proof nor pudding are contained in this earlier proverb, it's structurally and semantically similar enough to the proof of the pudding is in the eating to suggest that the latter may derive from the former. The first appearance in the written record of the actual phrase, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, occurs in British historian William Camden's 1605 work, Remains Concerning Britain. Camden's precise phrasing is slightly different. He writes, quote, All the proof of a pudding is in the eating, end quote. But there's no denying that this is indeed the same idiom. By all the proof of a pudding is in the eating, the metaphor that Camden is getting at is that the only way to know what a pudding tastes like is by actually eating it. More broadly, it proverbially suggests that first-hand experience, as opposed to superficial impressions, 
is the only true measure of something's quality. However, based on a literal interpretation of Camden's quote, all the proof of a pudding is in the eating, that's not necessarily the meaning we'd infer. The noun proof is defined as evidence or argument establishing or helping to establish a fact or the truth of a statement. According to this definition, the proof of the pudding is in the eating seems to suggest that the existence of the pudding can be proven by eating it. Whether or not that's a philosophically sound claim is a debate for another podcast, but if we were to interpret the statement, all the proof of the pudding is in the eating, in the year 2020, with the meaning William Camden intended in 1605, we would have to assume that he implicitly meant the proof of how good or bad the pudding tastes is in the eating. This may seem like I'm being unnecessarily pedantic, but let's consider proof's etymology. The noun proof and its verb form to prove both passed into English via Latin via French in the 12th century CE. Both are descendants of the Latin verb probare. Probare meant to prove in the common sense of the word used today, as in to demonstrate the existence of something by argument. But it also had a wide range of other common meanings, including to make good, esteem, make credible, test, inspect, and judge by trial. If we trace probare's etymology back one degree further, it derives from another Latin word, probus, meaning worthy, good, upright, and virtuous. Probus has come down to us in modern English as probity, a word meaning uprightness or honesty, making probity, prove, and of course proof all cognate. To understand the semantic thread woven through these words, consider this. If you want to prove your probity, you'll need to provide evidence of your goodness that stands up to the test. If you fail that test, you'll probably be put on probation, both of which also belong to this family of cognates. Probably describes something that might be proven true, and probation is a time period in which one can prove their probity. But I digress. While today our main sense of proof refers to an evidence-based argument, the sense of proof as a test or experience was just as common as the former in the 17th century. This sense of proof still gets its share of airplay in our language nowadays in compound constructions such as waterproof, bulletproof, foolproof, and so on. If something is waterproof, its resistance against water has been tested and proven. This original sense of prove also survives in the phrase proving yeast, which is what bakers do when they let yeast sit in warm water to test that it's active. Technically, this older sense of prove also survives in the idiom, the exception that proves the rule. And much like the idiom, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, its original intended meaning is not obvious to us today. The exception that proves the rule which, taken as a fixed expression, means a counterexample used to test the validity of a rule, is often used interchangeably with the exception to the rule, which means, quite clearly, an example of something that disproves a rule. If something tests a rule, it can either prove or disprove it, but this logic raises the question, just how can an exception prove a rule? There are two things to consider here. 
First, remember that we're dealing with the older sense of prove, meaning to test, not the modern sense, meaning to provide evidence in support of the truth. When an exception tests a rule, theoretically, the outcome of that test can either prove or disprove the rule. As it turns out, when people do use the exception that proves the rule correctly, that's correctly in air quotes, it's usually used to mean something that confirms that a rule is indeed true. But this archaic usage of prove isn't the most confusing part of the idiom. The word exception here also is an archaic usage, and it means something like the part of the rule that's not explicitly stated, as opposed to an exception in the modern sense. So if the rule is that the deli serves free coffee on Wednesdays, what's excluded from the rule but is implied is that the deli does not serve free coffee on every other day of the week. So this piece of information that's implied or excluded from the rule is the exception, and an exception such as the one I've demonstrated provides a counterexample that can test and validate the established rule. If you find that incredibly convoluted, I do too. The exception that proves the rule ultimately derives from the Latin legal axiom exceptio probat regulum in casibus non exceptis, a quote from Cicero which literally means the exception tests the rule in the cases not accepted. Clearly, he didn't phrase it in such a way that's easy to translate. But I wildly digress yet again. All of this is really just to say that when William Camden wrote all the proof of the pudding is in the eating, his contemporary readers would have understood it to mean the test of the pudding is in the eating. Now, what about the word pudding? Would that have meant something different to English speakers over 400 years ago? It sure would have. Pudding derives from the French word boudin, which derives from the Latin word botellus, and both of them meant sausage or small intestine. For most of the word's history, pudding was indeed used to describe savory-encased meats similar to sausage. In Scottish poet Robert Burns's 1786 poem, Addressed to a Haggis, he refers to haggis as, quote, the great chieftain of the pudding race, end quote. For American listeners who might not know what haggis is, I quote from the Google Dictionary, Haggis is a Scottish dish consisting of a sheep's or calf's offal mixed with suet, oatmeal, and seasoning and boiled in a bag, traditionally one made from the animal's stomach. Mm, thanks, but no thanks. Today, pudding has come to denote a kind of sweet, dairy-based dessert. In the UK and other Commonwealth countries, the original sense of pudding survives in the names of sausagey foods, such as black pudding and Yorkshire pudding, though without any qualifiers, the standalone word pudding also refers to desserts in these parts of the English-speaking world as well. So, in modern English, William Camden's All the Proof of the Pudding is in the Tasting is best translated as The Test of the Sausage is in the Tasting. Some etymological accounts have falsely credited Cervantes with coining all the proof of the pudding is in the eating in his novel Don Quixote. While it's true that a 1701 English translation of Don Quixote by Peter Anthony Matau does contain the phrase the proof of the pudding is in the eating, the original Spanish line from which this is translated reads Al freir de los huevos lo verá, which literally means 
You will see it when you fry the eggs. While translating al freir de los huevos lo verá as the proof of the pudding is in the eating does maintain Cervantes' use of an idiom, and a food-based idiom at that, it also distorts the original meaning. The meaning of Cervantes' proverb is more akin to the English idiom time will tell, whose meaning is, of course, distinct from that of the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The attempt to translate a foreign idiom into English as a similar pre-existing English idiom is something we saw in the episode on Apple of the Eye a few weeks back. To sum up the big picture, you usually can't translate an idiom from one language to another effectively because it poses both linguistic and cultural, shall we say, computational errors. The proof of the pudding is in the eating may not have been coined in Cervantes in Don Quixote, but it is indeed true that Peter Anthony Matthau's 1701 translation of the text helped preserve, popularize, and standardize the idiom. Between the first attestation in Camden's work and Matthau's translation, one other example of the idiom is recorded in the written record in an English translation of Boileau's Le Lutrin. This variant of the idiom goes, quote, the proof of the pudding's seen in the eating, end quote. While the proof of the pudding is in the eating is the most widely attested long version of the idiom, the versions most common today are the shortened, the proof of the pudding, and the corrupted, the proof is in the pudding. The corrupted proof is in the pudding first appears in the written record in an 1867 issue of the British Farmer's Magazine. Quote, Following the example of the Royal Agricultural Society of England, instead of one of the more wide-awake maxims of our great-grandfathers, which teaches us that when we cannot get one thing to make the best use of the other, the meeting appointed to be held at Stourport last year was abandoned. Although, as the proof is in the pudding, as seen at this and other gatherings, there was ample material, even without cattle, to make a capital show. End quote. Alongside the original long form of the idiom, this corrupted, shorter version begins appearing in the written record frequently during the late 19th century, and this continues on into the 20th century. In the 1950s, the shortened phrase seems to have caught on in American English. I haven't read this theory in other sources, but I wonder if the momentum of the idiom in American English during the 1950s has something to do with the popularity of jello, or gelatin pudding, during that decade. If you're wondering why was the idiom shortened, it's probably because speakers naturally tend to make language more efficient, as a general rule, whether it's through pronunciation, grammar, or the length of words or phrases. We shorten individual words and names all the time, so it's no surprise that we do the same thing to idioms. Since the meaning of an idiom is conveyed by a collection of words and not the sum of the parts of those words individually, once that meaning is established and fixed, amputating a word here or there from the idiom shouldn't change its meaning. This fixed nature of idioms also explains why we don't need to update the words contained within the idioms themselves as its individual words evolve in the language at large. All right, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to the podcast because those really help the show grow and give me feedback about what I can do to make the show better. I'm on Twitter at, at @wordsforgranted and Facebook as Words for Granted. And you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns 
at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. You can support the show at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted or with a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon.